So today we are kicking off a sermon series on the book of James. And um, those people that are listening on uh, live streaming, welcome to you. And uh, please get your Bible ready, turn to James chapter 1 so long. So the book of James, uh, also known as the epistle of James or the letter of James. By the way, epistle is not the apostles' wives. Epistle means letter, all right? And, um, but we're going to just call it the book of James. And if I was to give it a subtitle, I would say for this whole time together around James, it would be putting your faith to work, putting your faith to work. And I believe that if you have a passion to grow more in the word of God, uh, please make it a priority to journey with us in this series and let's see what God will do. This morning, we're going to focus on James chapter one, verse one to 11. And this is the first half of chapter 1, and so I trust that you are there so long. We'll get to reading the passage in a moment's time, but before we just jump in and begin to read a book, I believe it's good to have a little bit of an understanding of uh, what's this all about, something of the context, this James, who, who, who is this James? So let's look at some background about the epistle of James. Firstly, uh, did you know that Jesus had two disciples by the name of James? One was James, the son of Zebedee. The other one was James, the son of Alphaeus. Now, neither of them was responsible for this letter. Rather, it was James, the brother of Jesus, who authored this letter. Isn't that amazing? Because... Don't forget, Jesus had brothers and siblings and so on. Jesus was the firstborn because Mary was a virgin when she conceived Jesus of Nazareth. But then afterwards, more brothers and siblings came, and, and one of them that came was James. So in a sense, maybe we could say James is Jesus' little brother, and here we are hearing from Jesus' little brother today. But can you imagine if... Your brother, as in just James and there's Jesus, if your brother is the son of God. I mean, at some point in time, the revelation must have come to James and he had to begin to see his earthly brother in an altogether different light. But so it's interesting, and James was writing in this book, which contains five chapters, to Jewish believers that were scattered abroad. That's why it opens and says to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. Now, initially, Peter, he was the key leader that was leading this church in Jerusalem. Remember on the day of Pentecost, it was Peter that got up and preached and began to take that leadership role. But what happened is after a while, Peter then moved on to, bego, to begin to plant churches in other places, churches elsewhere. And when Peter moved on, it was James who began to emerge as the key leader in that church community. And by the way, think about this. This was the first Christian community ever. Imagine that. So James is pastoring this, and it's like there's no models to follow this is the first Christian church community, and he is privileged to lead that. Now, James was a good man. James had a good reputation. 
He was known as a pillar in the church in Jerusalem, and he was also known as a peacemaker. And he led that local congregation for approximately 20 years. And then sadly, in the end, he was martyred. But what an example he set in his life. Now, the epistle of James is full of wisdom. It really is. And in terms of the wisdom that's there, it's intended really to speak into your life. And this book is intended to build solid believers. Now, you might be here and at this point in time, you can't really say, well, I'm a solid believer. You still like bobbing and weaving and so on. I want to tell you, this book can help you to become more solid. And in particular, James is trying to challenge people in terms of how they live. Challenging them in terms of how they live. And it seems as though James, he was a guy who wasn't messing around. He was really serious about God. And when he would encounter people that were not really putting God in first place, he would challenge them. And he was also encouraging people, urging them to practical righteousness. So that's a bit of an introduction. James chapter 1, verse 1 to 11. I'm reading from the New King James Version. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. Don't you agree that's a good way to start your letter? Greetings. My brethren, now he goes straight into teaching, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work. Would you say the word patience? patience. You know what? Patience is important to God. In our contemporary culture, patience is not important. Consumerism is the thing. But God values patience. Be transformed by the reunion of your mind according to the word of God. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Praise the Lord. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. For he is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Now, verse 9, 10, and 11, quite frankly, I have found it difficult to really understand the core of this. If you read it from the New King James Version or the NIV, it's a little difficult to understand, but clarity will come later on. Let's see. Maybe it's just easy for you from the beginning. Verse 9, it says, Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation." But the rich in his humiliation, because as the flower of the field he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. 
The Lord bless the reading of his holy word. Amen. Now, I see four key components to the passage of scripture that we've read. And I'm just going to put them into four points so that we can have the key things and walk out of here with a, I believe, a clear understanding of what James is saying in this first half of chapter one. Point number one, trials and testing will come. But no, they are there to make you complete. Please say that with me. Trials and testing will come. But know that they are there to make you complete. Now, as some of you read that on the screen, I would su suspect that some of you don't even like what you see up there. Some of you, when it comes to trials and testings, you're thinking, stop the world and let me get off. I'm out of here. But I want to tell you, that if we're going to be Bible-believing Christians, we have to believe what the Word of God says. What I also love about preaching through a book of the Bible is you get to all these aspects which maybe you didn't initially like or, or scriptures that you might have avoided, but when you're preaching through a book of the Bible, you begin to preach on all interesting aspects. And I want to tell you that a proper, balanced, Bible-believing church should not select all the nice stuff and just focus on the nice stuff. Come on, we need to focus on everything that God's Word says. Amen. And so here it says, James 1, verse 2 to 4, and it's not appearing on your screen because we want you to follow in your Bible. It says, my brethren, count it all joy. Now, the cynical man, when he says that, he says, my brethren, count it all joy. You're right. God's in heaven. I'm here on earth. But you know what? The man with the right spirit, when he reads that, count it all joy, begins to sit with him in his spirit. When you fall into various trials, please say the word trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Now, we can choose to see trials and testing as something terrible. Or we can see trials and testing as something beneficial. The way we respond to these things is very important. There's a well-known saying, I'm sure you've heard it, it says in life, it's not so much what happens to you that matters, but how you respond to it. I remember in a time of my life going through a time of deep trial and testing. And by the way, God isn't, there's not trials and testing all the time, but there are times where there is trials and testing. So I was going through a deep time in terms of that, and somebody came and told this to me. John, it's not so much what happens to you that matters, but how you respond to it. To tell you the truth, I felt like feeding his words back to him. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Maybe that's just me. <laughs> you know, when you're going through a trial and somebody just like wants to... <sighs> but you know what? Afterwards, when I thought about it, I thought it was right. Another version says this. Life is 10%. Uh, life is 10% what happens to you and 90% how you react to that. Isn't that so true? I remember meeting with a certain man and he had been through a tremendous time of testing. Praise the Lord, he had come through on top, and he was sharing after the fact of what God had done. But you know what struck me? He said, you know what, John? I wouldn't change it for the world. 
really wouldn't. And I was so blessed by his positive attitude and, and a victorious attitude. And I was blessed by it. And I thought to myself, this is fascinating that a person responds like this. But you know what? I believe that Heavenly Father is also blessed when we respond with the right kind of attitude. He's blessed when he sees you responding like that. Can I ask you this morning, are you right now facing a time of trials and testing? And if you are, I would like to gently encourage you to respond from your spirit nature, not from your fleshly nature. If you respond from your spirit nature, I'm of the opinion that God can take you through trials quicker. <laughs> Those in the wilderness responded from their fleshly nature, spent a lot more time in the wilderness than they needed to. Respond from your spirit nature. And if you're in a time of trial and testing, I want to say, may I encourage you to embrace God at this time. I want to encourage you, don't despise the season that you're going through. Don't. But would you look at it through heaven's eyes? Because the moment we begin to allow God to give us his perspective, things come into divine alignment. Now, James, who wrote this epistle, he actually demonstrated a wonderfully positive attitude uh, when he faced certain trials. And in Acts chapter 5, we see this. You don't have to turn there. So James, together with the other apostles, they were brought before the religious council, the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin were getting scared because these guys were turning the world upside down with the message of Jesus. So they threatened them and they said, we command you not to teach in Jesus' name. Stop preaching in Jesus' name. And then what happened is they were beaten and they were whipped by the Sanhedrin. And then they were set free. Now, how would you feel? God, I'm just ministering for you. I'm just doing some soul winning for you. And I get beaten and I get whipped. Well, you know what? They responded in an incredible way. And the scripture says in Acts chapter 5, it says, They departed, this is after being whipped, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Now, that if that's not a counted all joy kind of attitude, then I don't know what is. And I believe that some of us need to have a, an adjustment in terms of our attitudes that we would say, sorry, God. That I have been digging in my heels, but I'm just going to say, Lord, I'm going with this because you are working to making me complete. Now, carrying on in verse 4, it says that we will become perfect and complete, lacking nothing. What stands out for me here is the word complete. Would you please say it? Complete. God is busy fashioning you. He's fashioning me. He's making us more and more complete, and the fullness of that will one day, will be one day when we see Jesus face to face, in the twinkling of an eye, we'll become just like him. But all along, God on earth is busy developing you. He's making you more like Jesus. He is making you complete. And you know what? Sometimes, so often, we hold on to things to complete us. We hold on to things like material possessions. We hold on to things like money. We hold on to things like position. We hold on to things like power. 
But God does not want you and I to find our security in those things. And you know what? If it becomes a problem, he may even in his wisdom, love, and grace begin to remove some of those things from your life so that you'll begin to look to him once again for your completeness. God does it because he loves you so much. And he knows what is important. And so we need to look to him for our completeness. It says in Colossians 2 verse 10, God has made you complete in Christ, complete in him. And so we need to stop looking to money to complete us or your career. Let me tell you, your career will never complete you. Some people are looking for a spouse and you say, if I can just get a spouse, then I'll be complete. Some of you are saying, oh, if I could just get a million rand, then I will be complete. I don't know where that came from, but anyhow, some of you are saying, I will be complete then. You know what? Those things do not complete you. It is Christ Jesus and Him alone that completes the children of God. He is the one that completes you. And you're complete in Him. And so our text today is saying, count it all joy. Why? Because your character is changing for good. Count it all joy. Why? Because Christ has been formed in you. Count it all joy. Why? Because you are becoming complete. And you know what? When I think of this whole thing of trials and testing and what God takes us through to complete us, I think, oh God, may our attitude towards trials be an attitude that pleases you. Can I get an amen? amen? Point number two. This is an interesting one. We can turn to God for heavenly wisdom, much like we turn to Google for earthly info. <laughs> now, I don't mean to cheapen our channel of wisdom in any way whatsoever. But relating it to this example of Google could possibly help us understand a concept. And by the way, Jesus, he would always use things in society in those days when he walked the earth. And then he would bring in spiritual principles. But here's the thing. You see, it has become order of the day for us to Google things all the time. We do it all the time. Now, can I see how many of you, and my hand is up, how many of you made use of Google at least once this week? Raise a hand. Okay. A lot of people make use of Google. Now, those people that didn't raise their hand, I'd like to suggest that you get Google and Google what is Google. All right. Or ask somebody else that raised their hands. And we Google all sorts of things. We want to know, well, when is Father's Day? When is full moon? Uh, what is Brexit? You know, how old is Theresa May? Who scored for Bafana Bafana? Or what time is the Grand Prix? These are all the things that we Google all the time. And, um, and plenty of other things as well. Now, it has become a habit to Google things all the time. I want to encourage you in the same way, in much the same way, let it become a habit to ask of your heavenly Father for wisdom. Come on. Let it become a habit. Let it become a habit to ask God for wisdom. Tell that to the person next to you. Let it become a habit to ask God for wisdom. Tell them that, please. May it become a habit. Asking Him for wisdom. Now, as an executive team of the church, 
When we come together for our meetings every few weeks to talk about the management of the church, spiritual direction and finances and all these things, invariably we start off the meeting and we say, God, would you please give us wisdom? It's almost like a set prayer. And we pray it because we mean it. And you know what? I believe that God hears and he answers those prayers. And I believe a little reason why Choose Life is blessed is because we're asking God for His wisdom, and it's His wisdom that is building the house. Praise the Lord. But in your situation, let this become a habit. Let this not be the last resort when you're down and out and sobbing on your pillow. Let this be something that you turn to soon, asking God. And James 1 verse 5, this is what it says. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Now, what does it mean when God says that he will give wisdom without reproach? That's interesting. He'll give wisdom without reproach. Well, it means that he will give wisdom without finding fault in you. He will give wisdom without looking down on you because you're asking. He will give wisdom. He's not going to say, well, last time you asked for wisdom, you didn't apply the wisdom, and so I'm finding fault with you. You're not getting wisdom this time. No, that's not how God works. I do also want to remind you that Father God, I want to remind you of His character. Father God is wonderfully generous. Father God loves to give us wisdom when we ask for him to give us wisdom. And you know what? The simple thing is that all you need to do is you need to ask. That's what the Bible says. If you need it, ask. He'll give liberally and he's not going to find fault in that process. Are you currently facing a situation that requires wisdom in your life right now? I could imagine many people. Right now you need wisdom for something. It might be like, Lord, which school do I send my daughter to? It might be a case of, Lord, in terms of my investment and shares, the, uh, should I sell at this point in time or should I sell later? Lord, give me wisdom because how do I handle this conflict at work? But Father God is ready to help. And when we ask for wisdom, God promises that he will give it to us. And so I want to encourage you today and say, when you ask for wisdom, he is not going to leave you hanging. Why don't you tell the person next to you, he's not going to leave you hanging. <laughs> Amen. Now, point number three, which is a shorter point. I'm not going to spend much time on this because the passage is largely self-explanatory, but we're going to read those three verses. Point number three, ask confidently in faith. Say this aloud with me. Ask confidently in faith. And it says in verse 6 to 8 of our text in James 1, But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. For he is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. How would you like if I spoke to you today? And just say, oh yeah, you double-minded, unstable in all your... Well, you know what? James was talking straight when he said these things, double-minded, unstable in all his ways. But you know what? Actually, sometimes it's good that the Word of God just speaks straight to us, and just hits us. <laughs> I have discovered that some people, just with the dropping of a pin, 
of a gentle whisper of God, they hear it and they respond. But I must tell you, I've discovered that other people, they actually need to hear it very, very clearly, almost like boom in your face. <laughs> and James is speaking like that, very assuredly, talking straight. But essentially what he is saying here is that when we approach God, in other words, when you come before God and you make a request, it is important that we come with confidence and also that we don't allow doubting in our hearts. That is the way your heavenly Father loves for you to approach him. <laughs> come with confidence, child of God, when you ask. Come with confidence and come without allowing doubt into your heart. That's the way he wants you to approach him. And we must believe in the character of God. We must believe that he truly loves us and cares for us when we come to him. We must believe that truly nothing is impossible for our God. I like what Beth Moore says. She says, when you come to God, believe that he is who he says he is and believe that he can do what he says he can do. And so we should have confidence, believing in his character, believing in his goodness, believing in his greatness. Amen? Now, if there is a lack of confidence when we come to God, it shows that we have a doubtful mind. Another way of putting it is a divided mind. And basically, our minds are, are vacillating between trusting God. Oh, yeah, now I'm trusting God. Now I'm... I've got my own plans. I've got my backup plans. Oh, no, no. Now I'm trusting God. Now I'm trusting God. Woo, I came out of church. I'm trusting God. Tuesday morning. No, no, no. Back to my own plans. And we vacillate. We vacillate. And that's exactly what the scripture says, that it's like a wave in the sea driven back and forward. That is the doubting mind. But I want to say to you, the doubting mind is not the mind that I or you should have. We should have the mind that comes with confidence, and we should have the mind that does not allow doubt into our heart. Psalm 112, verse 6 to 7, from the Amplified Classic Bible edition, uh, puts it very beautifully. Now, I just want to say, this is a scripture that my mom began to, since I was a little chokarki, she began to claim the scripture over my life, and thank you, mom for claiming promises. And I just want to remind you, parents, claim promises over your children's lives. It will affect their very destiny. So this is it. Psalm 112, verse 6 to 7. It speaks about he, this is the righteous man, the person who fears the Lord. He will not be moved. His heart is firmly fixed, trusting, leaning, and being confident in the Lord God. Don't you like that? And so I want to encourage you, let your heart be fixed, firmly trusting in the Lord. Give up those mistaken tones of distrust in your heart and mind and say, God, I will believe in who you are. I will believe in your character. My heart is fixed, yes, firmly trusting in the Lord. Please say this after me. My heart is fixed, firmly trusting in the Lord. Now, say it all together. My heart is fixed, firmly trusting in the Lord. One more time, a little louder. My heart is fixed, firmly trusting in the Lord. Wow. That can be your reality. Begin to claim that as a promise for your life. Now, moving on to point four, our last point this morning. Don't glory in riches. Glory in knowing God. 
This is something that James is teaching us. As I said earlier, verse 9, 10, and 11 is a little difficult to understand. And the translation that I found best uh, uh, brought it across was the Amplified Bible. And so it, it will appear on your screen. It's James chapter 1, verse 9 and 10 from Amplified. It says, let the brother in humble circumstances. That's the brother that doesn't have a lot of wealth. Glory in his high position. What high position? As a born-again believer called to the true riches and to be an heir of God. Now it talks about the rich in verse 10. And the rich man is to glory in being humbled. How? By trials revealing human frailty, knowing true riches are found in the grace of God. For like the flower of the grass, he will pass away. And so what I see here is interesting is the theme of trials that came up a little bit earlier. Here, trials is coming up again. Now, one of the things that I believe that this is bringing across is that when a rich man is humbled and drawn away from trials and, uh, by trials and testing and is drawn away from his love of money and drawn closer to God, it is a blessing. <laughs> Come on. It's a blessing. You might think, well, it's a blessing in disguise. Yeah, I guess so. But it's a blessing nonetheless because it is better to know God and have less than it is to have much and not know God. I know of people in this congregation that there were times when you were just pursuing the absolute career dream, climbing the corporate ladder, stamping on other people's knuckles in front of you, on the, uh, below you on the corporate ladder, sacrificing your family for corporate success, and God began to take those things away so that he could work inside of you because ultimately he's a jealous God. He wants your heart. He wants your heart. Bless you. James chapter 1, verse 9 and 10, one more translation just to look at. It says, if you are a brother of humble means, celebrate the fact that God has raised you up. If you are rich and seemingly invincible, savor the humble reality that you are a mere mortal who will vanish like the flower that withers in the field. And so some of the things that we read in the Word of God are a bit more challenging. I think this is one of them. Listen to what one theologian wrote. We find true wealth by developing our spiritual lives, not our financial assets. Now, I did say true wealth. We find true wealth by developing our spiritual lives, not our financial assets. Now, having said that, there is nothing wrong with developing your financial assets. The Bible says that a wise man builds an inheritance for his children's children. But the heart issue is where is your heart in terms of being with God? And really, it's the spiritual lives that we need to be developing. You know, let's not forget that earthly riches are short-lived. How long are you going to have the money that you have? <laughs> 
Listen to this statement. It says, earthly riches are destined to pass away. But sometimes in the world in which we live, we think that the possessions around about us that many times impress us, we think that those are forever. But they are not forever. But there is a God who created a way of salvation for you to know Him, and eternity lies in the destiny with God. And so James is actually realigning some perspectives here. But as I was looking at this passage of Scripture, I was honestly challenged because I realized the way in which God views riches and the way in which society views riches are very different. The world tends to exalt money. It tends to worship money and exalt riches. But to God, it's no big deal whatsoever. (laughs) For God, it's just a means. It is not an end. Now, I want to say to you today, I want to ask you this question. How do you view riches and wealth? I want to ask you today, has money got your heart? Has riches got your heart? Are you hotly pursuing it? And I want to say, if that's the case today, don't just listen to the word, be a doer. And rather, let God be your gold and your precious silver. Come on, church. Let God be your gold and your precious silver. He is more precious than silver, more costly than gold. And also realize this, that whether you've got lots of money or less money, God views you in the same light. Let me tell you, he doesn't give special treatment to wealthy people and lesser treatment to poor. No, he is not a respecter of persons. And let me say this, that sometimes I've had a situation where a wealthy person has tried to get influence in this church. I remember a number of years ago, a man came to see me and he wanted to become a member of the church. High power businessman, really was a high power businessman. And he came with his high power business friend and and they wanted to become members. So I said, well, just come along to the new members meeting. No, 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 pastor, we want to meet with you in your boardroom. So I'm like, golly. (laughs) Anyhow, um, so, okay. So my brother Andrew and I met with this gentleman and so on. And before long in the conversation, I realized that this guy wanted to impress me with his money and try to get position in the church as a result of his money. And you won't believe what he did. At one point in the conversation, he told us the bank balance of the church. So he must have had some buddies or something, I don't know, sneaky and finding out the bank balance. And I thought, my goodness. And I realized that the bottom line is he wanted to become involved and and be put on the board of the church. And then I said to him very politely, but I said to him, sir, I just need to let you know that uh, wealthy people don't get special treatment in our church. And I could see his face dropped because he realized he wasn't just going to be able to turn this person around his finger. Now, let me also just say this, that remember, God is not a respecter of persons, and I want to challenge you with this that you and I, we must be careful that we don't value rich people more than those that have less. In your circle of friends, if you've got that uh, member, not, not a member of your family, well, it could be that too, but in your circle of friends, if you have somebody who's like, wow, they've got the real prime address, they've got the real bucks and so on, Don't try to spend more time with them and don't, if I could use the word, the Greek word, suck up to them. (laughs) 
Because that's not the heart of God. That's not the way. He's not a respecter of persons. Neither should we. And somebody who has next to nothing, we should treat them with as much dignity and respect as we treat somebody who's a super millionaire. And I want to tell you that this is what God's word says to us today. Let the course corrections be made according to the word of God. Now, I'm going to conclude with one more scripture. Let me tell you this. God's heart concerning riches is clearly revealed in Jeremiah chapter 9. And also the writings of, of James are in complete agreement with that. Let me read it to you. Jeremiah 9 verse 23 to 24. Let God minister this to you. Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches. But let him who glories, glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth, for in these I delight. This is God's heart. So, will we glory in riches? No. But let us glory in knowing God. And we will be in line with biblical principles. Now, I've shared four things with you today. We are journeying through the book of James. Four simple things. Number one, trials and testing will come. But they are there to make you complete. Number two, we can turn to God for heavenly wisdom, much like we turn to Google for earthly information. Number three, ask confidently in faith. Let there be no doubting. And number four, don't glory in riches. Don't be impressed with riches. Glory in knowing God. Have you received the word this morning? Let's give the Lord a hand of praise. Amen. Stand with me, please. Let's stand. Without anyone leaving right now, let's have a moment of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word helps us to stay on course and not to get into nonsense and not to get off track. So we just want to say we love your word. We honor your word. Thank you that you have set your word above your name. And so, Father, I pray that we would go out of this place and not forget what has been said. Thank you that those seeds are sown in fertile soil. And thank you that you will take it and use it to develop our lives. But we say, Lord, above all, we love you, Jesus. We glorify your name and let your kingdom come in our lives. We ask this in the matchless name of Jesus. And we all say aloud, Amen. 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 God bless you, everybody.